Alright, welcome back to our systematic theology uh, study. We are now on session 26, the states of Christ. Uh, last time we looked at the names of Christ, and next time we'll be looking at the offices of Christ. Uh, these three kind of go together quite a bit, so we're in the, in the middle of it here. Um, we're going to follow mostly our usual uh, format, do an introduction, watch our video, go through our overview, but uh, instead of reviewing um, chapter 8 of our confession, because we actually reviewed the entire chapter last time, and we'll review it some more next time, um, we'll spend a little more time maybe reading some Bible passages in our overview instead, and I'll, I'll ask you to participate a little bit in that. Um, yeah, so let's start out with our introduction and uh, look at our, our article that goes uh, along with this session. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the creator and redeemer. It is through his name alone that anyone can have the hope of the new heavens and the new earth and resurrection life. Theologians consider Jesus Christ according to three main categories, his person, his states, and his offices. Because Jesus Christ is central to the Christian faith, these three categories are important for understanding Christianity. Jesus Christ is one person. This one person has two complete, inseparable, yet distinct natures, one human and the other divine. He is the second person of the triune God, who, having possessed a divine nature from all eternity, added to himself a human nature in the Incarnation. His human nature is a fully human body and soul. He united the human nature to his divine nature at his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This conception happened by the power of the Holy Spirit. The one person, Jesus Christ, can act according to either nature, as we see in Scripture. The properties of either nature can be attributed to the one person of Jesus. This is known as the communication of attributes. However, each nature retains its own characteristics. His human nature has never been divine and never will start to become divine, nor will his divine nature ever change into something less than divine. His human body and soul are finite, always sinless and now glorified, being present in, he in heaven at the right hand of the Father. His divine nature is omniscient, omnipresent, and not omnipotent. If Jesus Christ were not truly human, he could not fully redeem humans, as the early church father Athanasius said. <clears throat> Whatever was not assumed by Jesus was not healed. If Jesus were not truly divine, then the human body and soul of Jesus could not have sustained the weight of God's wrath against sin while he was on the cross. The states of Christ refer to the way that theologians distinguish the various parts of Christ's life and work, on the basis of texts such as Philippians 2, and we'll look at some of that text later in our overview. Jesus Christ entered the state of humiliation by being born, and not in a palace or to a woman the world considered important. The course of his life and perfect obedience, active and passive, is included in his state of humiliation, as is his suffering, death, and burial. The resurrection of Jesus on the third day marked the beginning of his state of exaltation. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of the Father until the day of his return. These two states describe what Jesus had to do and where he had to come to save us, as well as where he takes us after death and resurrection. 
Being united to Christ in faith means that we follow a similar journey, except that Christ is ahead of us, drawing us after him. The offices of Christ, which we'll look at next time, refer to what he does for our salvation. He is prophet, priest, and king. All three of these offices are essential for our salvation. As prophet, he reveals salvation to us, both in his own actions and in the revelation of Holy Scripture. We can see how important this is to us for salvation if we simply ask the following question. What good would it do us if Jesus did all things for our salvation, but we never knew about it? Jesus reveals not only himself, but also the Father and the Holy Spirit. As a priest, Jesus fulfills everything about the Old Testament sacrificial system. He is the priest offering the sacrifice, which is himself, and he is the temple, the place where the sacrifice is offered. He brings an end to all animal sacrifices by being the perfect and final sacrifice for sins. This he did as a substitute for us, taking the guilt and penalty that we deserve. As a king, Jesus conquers our enemies, especially Satan and his kingdom, establishes an everlasting kingdom, conquers our own rebellious hearts, and rules over us for eternity. We could not be saved if we were still in the kingdom of Satan. We need to be part of a new kingdom. As the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king in both his estate of humiliation and his estate of exaltation. So it's kind of a brief overview of these three sessions, last time, this time, next time. But uh, that middle part was definitely related to what we're looking at here. Um, so yeah, let's, let's pause, watch our video, and when we go through our overview, we'll look at several biblical passages uh, that relate. Alright, so did we enjoy our, our video? thought it was a particularly good one. Let's go through our overview and see what we learned. Um, so we're looking at the States of Christ, uh, Introduction. The states of Christ refer to Christ's role or activity at different times throughout his life and existence. Here we look at the states of Christ all the way from his pre-incarnate existence to his final return. Our overview. The Bible discusses the person and work of Jesus in three ways. The names of Christ, the states of Christ, and the offices of Christ. Again, we looked at names last time, we're looking at states this time, and we'll look at offices next time. Uh, the states of Christ do not begin with his birth, but with his pre-incarnate state. In John 1, and we'll read from John 1 a little later, um, not the whole chapter, but in John 1, we read that Jesus existed prior to his birth. His divine nature is eternally coexistent with the Father. Recorded in the Old Testament are several encounters with a being thought to be the pre-incarnate Christ. And we look at Joshua 5.13. Did someone look that up? Let's read that. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, went and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Okay, and then also a reference to Exodus 3, 2. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. All right. An encounter such as this is called a Christophany. The Apostles' Creed refers to the birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and final return of Jesus. 
These are generally known as the states of Christ. The nature of Jesus' states generally flows from humiliation to exaltation. And like we talked about in the video, that's, that's general. That's not exact. There's not an exacting point where it's a flip, uh, but it's a flow more, more like. Uh, in his incarnation and daily life, Jesus is humiliated, culminating in the crucifixion. But from that point, he experiences greater and greater glory, which will culminate in his return. This is agreeable to a point, but does have, it, have its limits. Um, in Dr. Swell's book, The Glory of Christ, he looks at the manifestations of glory throughout Christ's life. The book shows that scripture testifies that Christ was always glorious, even in the midst of his pre-resurrection humiliation. His physical body was a carryover from his state of humiliation. The same body that died came out of the tomb. This reveals to us that the incarnation was not completely filled with humiliation, just as the time of humiliation was not devoid of glory. The greatest moment of Christ's glory so far has been the ascension. And we read about the ascension in Acts 1. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I will read a few verses related specifically to the ascension, um, starting in verse 6. Uh, you're welcome to just uh, listen. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on him, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we see his ascension there. Now, the importance of this event is often highly underestimated. Jesus ascended to sit, rule, and intercede on behalf of all believers. Uh, as it was talked about in the, in the video, the ascension goes hand in hand with his coronation. Uh, from this place of majesty, he will return to judge. All right, so let's look at our, our questions and answers uh, to see if uh, hopefully we've, we've learned some of that and remember some of the highlights here. What was the first state of Christ? his pre-incarnate state. Christ existed in his pre-incarnate state before the foundation of time. And I have a reference here to John 1 and the first uh, 14 verses. So let's go ahead and look at that. Let me look it up one second here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who, who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, next question. What is a manifestation of the invisible God called? Don't get tripped up on this because we talked about Christophanies. This, this is a theophany because the question was invisible God, not specifically the second person, uh, Christ. So example, the burning bush, which uh, we, we read a passage with. A Christophany is an outward manifestation of the second person of the Trinity before his birth. So a Christophany would be a subcategory of a theophany. So Christophany is a theophany, but it's specific to, right, the second person. It is specific to the uh, Son of God. All right, let's see. Next question. Christ's state of humiliation refers generally to what? His incarnation. Christ emptied himself to the glories of heaven by taking on flesh. Sorry about the misprint there. Uh, then let's look at Philippians 2. Taking on flesh. Philippians 2, 5. All right, I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, interesting that we had a sermon uh, related to this just on Sunday. Do we remember... When we read this passage uh, in the sermon and looked at it, um, let me reread here. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Do we remember what that name is? We just talked about it in the sermon. If you fall, if you fall along, then next it says, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So often people assume we're talking about the name of Jesus, but that's incorrect. What name are we talking about? We're talking about the covenant name of God, Yahweh, right? All right, moving on, our next uh, question. What moment was Christ's highest point of exaltation? His ascension. Other than the second coming in glory at the consummation of history, the ascension was the climax of Christ's exaltation. It was his coronation. So we looked at that, talked about that earlier, it being uh, the ascension leading to his coronation as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What is considered by some to be the line between Jesus' humiliation and exaltation? 
His resurrection. But we looked at why that, that is not an exacting line, why there is kind of an overlap and a flow between his humiliation and uh, his exaltation. And that um, while in general, there, obviously there's a shift at his resurrection, that, that's not an exacting point where everything before was humiliation, everything after is exaltation. Um, that's not quite the way it goes. Uh, so we note here, however, the exaltation of Christ actually began at the moment as of his death and memorial burial before his resurrection, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Okay, Isaiah 53 is, is one of my favorite um, chapters of scripture. It's not terribly long, so let's go ahead uh, and look at that. Yeah, I'll give you just a second since it is a, a chapter, so you can read along if you'd like. All right, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for this his generation, who considered... <coughs> that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days." The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be, to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's always been one of the Old Testament passages that honestly I've, I've never known how you could, you could read that and, and uh, not just see Christ all through the whole chapter. Um, that's, that's something we've talked about before that, that uh, you know, the... Scripture, the Word of God, is, is all about Christ, and we are not just talking about the New Testament, we are talking about the Old Testament as well. 
And uh, that did make me think also something in, in the video that wasn't mentioned. He was talking about um, how the, the prophecy in Isaiah that uh, his bones would not be broken, uh, even though that it was the, the custom uh, when the Romans crucified to break the bones before they discarded the bodies into this pit. Um, something he didn't mention. So part of that tradition, or really it's, it's more pragmatic than that. The reason why they broke the bones is when uh, the people, the criminals, were being crucified on the crosses. Uh, you know, they were nailed to the cross, and it was very difficult for them to breathe. And what would happen, and the reason why it's so uh, excruciatingly painful, and we've talked about excruciating, uh, literally, the word literally meaning uh, tortured on a cross. The reason why it's so painful is to be able to take a, a breath, they had to push up, themselves up, to be able to take a breath. So they're pushing their feet on those nails that are going through their feet, giving them excruciating pain every time they need to take a breath. Well, they would come up there and they would whack their legs and break their, their leg bones when they were ready for the criminal to hurry up and die because they were just taking too long to die. Because you break their leg, they can no longer push up, they can no longer breathe, and they're going to die pretty quickly. Or... They appear to be dead, but they have to be extra sure because they're going to be in big trouble if they're not really dead. So they break the bones anyway to make sure, double sure, that they're dead. Point is, they always would go up there and break their legs. So it's an amazing uh, pronouncement here in Isaiah that the Lord's legs will, uh, bones will not be broken because everyone who's crucified, their legs are always broken. Well, we know the story, right? They, instead of breaking their legs, they stuck a, a spear in his side and saw the, the fluid flow out from his side, uh, showing that he was dead because he didn't, didn't even move when they basically stabbed his heart, is what they did. And that fluid had built up around his heart, um, which is a common medical thing uh, that happens on death, and that's the fluid that, that flowed out. So that's how they knew he was dead. They didn't need to break his bones. Uh, they knew he was dead at that point. But anyway, that's just kind of a side note since he was talking about that. All right, last question here. Uh, was the incarnation entirely about humiliation? No. Christ still has a physical resurrected body in his glorified state, which foreshadows the hope of the resurrection of our bodies. He has been raised as the firstborn of the brethren. And so, uh, yeah, we did look at how, how Christ is kind of... Uh, he leads the way. He is the forebearer, right? Um, so we have this great hope of resurrection uh, of our bodies. Um, but Christ is the leader in that. He is already, uh, his body is already resurrected. All right, discussion questions. Uh, what are the three ways the Bible discusses the person and work of Christ? The names of Christ, the state of Christ, and the office of Christ. Correct. Names, states, and offices of Christ. Again, we'll look at the offices next time. We've already looked at the names and we just looked at the states. What Bible passages shed light on the pre-incarnate state of Christ? John 1, 1 through 14. Yeah, John 1 is, is uh, definitely uh, probably the most significant one there. Um, we can also find some passages in the Old Testament as well. Uh, what states of Christ are enumerated in the Apostles' Creed? Uh, birth, death, resurrection, ascension, secession, and return. Yes, and, uh, and I think it's very helpful. You know, we, we have a, uh, 
a habit of reciting the Apostles' Creed together every Lord's Day uh, at our, our local church, and I think that's a very helpful uh, reminder for us to uh, proclaim together um, Christ's work and Christ's, uh, Christ's um, states. And, you know, we probably never even thought of it that way when, we, when we've been reciting the Apostles' Creed, but that we're actually reciting, you know, the states of Christ. What, what do we mean when we speak of humiliation of Christ? He took on flesh, right. So that's the incarnation that was uh, God humiliating himself, condescending to be born of flesh, uh, to come down and walk among men as a man. Um, so that's, that's a big part of it. What else goes with this humiliation besides just incarnation in general? I mean, is that, was that it? Christ lived as a man, and that, that's the end of his humiliation? Or is there more to the humiliation than that? What's his big work that he did that was obviously humiliating? Something he didn't deserve? Right, he took on the sin of the world uh, that he didn't deserve because he was without sin himself. Um, and then was crucified for you know a humiliating, excruciating death. Um, Maybe then at the crown of thorns and then right, and all the lead up to it, the, the whipping and the and the crown of thorns and uh, being spit upon and cursed and all that uh, is part of the humiliation. Okay, well, again, we're, we won't uh, look at our. Uh, confession specifically tonight because we'd, we'd again be looking at chapter 8 which we just read the whole thing last time and we will briefly look at next time um, but you're welcome to go back through chapter 8 uh, in, in light of the states of Christ if you wish um, but any, any more comments or questions or thoughts on the states of Christ I, just, I, I do like how they tie it with the Apostles Creed that is something to think through when we, as we say that Right, yeah. Yeah, I appreciated that as well. Well, and also where Paul said that the time of this humiliation, he was not devoid of glory. Say it again? The time of his humiliation, he was not devoid of glory. Correct, yes. In fact, as we even talked about in the video, I mean, we, we see evidence of, of glory uh, just on... In fact, I would go back further. He talked about his birth. And, and we see that, right, in the pronouncement of his birth. We see the glory there. But really, you can look, go back to um, the simple you know, story of the angel appearing to Mary just to announce the, um, the conception. I mean, I, I would say that's pretty glorious, too, that you have an angel coming and announcing this. All right, I think it was a good session. Let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer, and I look forward to, to next time looking at the offices of Christ. God and our Father, we do thank you that once again you have given us um, the ability and freedoms to come together to continue to study your word, Lord, and we pray that it has illuminated us uh, through your spirit, that uh, you have further opened our, our ears and our minds, um, that you've transformed our minds, and that you continue to, to transform our minds and sanctify us um, by further having clarity of your word, 
Uh, we pray that uh, indeed we would continue to, to thirst more and more uh, for your truth. And Lord, we thank you specifically uh, for the work uh, uh, that Christ performed for us on our behalf, uh, that we um, may have salvation. And uh, we thank you so much that uh, you, you have called us children of God uh, for those uh, who are in, in Christ. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the great humiliation uh, that Christ uh, suffered through on our behalf. And we praise you for the glorification of our King of Kings, uh, of Christ. And we, we praise you that he now sits at the right hand of God as coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we continue to look forward to uh, his return uh, and, and the great glory that will, will come with his return, Lord. Um, we anxiously await. And Lord, we, um, we just pray that you would continue uh, to watch over this local body and, and continue to uh, protect it and and guide and direct it, Lord. We pray that your word and your truth will continue to be boldly proclaimed. Um, we do ask that uh, you, you do forgive us for our many sins that uh, we've committed just this last uh, last week, this last day, or this, this last hour, Lord. Um, but we thank you that in Christ uh, we know that we have forgiveness. We know uh, that your mercy and grace... Uh, are sufficient uh, for all our sins. And we just, again, praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.